Climate law matters. What does the precautionary principle mean to a scientist? Interview with Dr. Alex Lee, chartered geologist and scientist. Hello, listener, and welcome back to our podcast, Climate Law Matters, in which we explore the legal developments across different sectors to address the key issue of climate change. I am Steph David, a barrister at 39 Essex Chambers, specialising in environmental and climate change cases. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Dr. Alex Lee, who leads the environmental and climate change team at HKA. Alex, thank you very much for agreeing to speak to me. A very big thank you for the invite. I'm delighted to be part of today's Climate Law Matters podcast. To start, Alex, can you tell the listener about your background and expertise? Absolutely. So, indeed, I am a chartered scientist and geologist. I also have a PhD in glaciology. What I am now, however, is a specialist in soil and water pollution. For most of my career, I've been an environmental consultant and in recent years an expert witness. What I am not is an expert in legal matters. The views I express, therefore, come from my experience and are typically more practical. I now lead the expert dispute and advisory team at HKA. And who are HKA and what's your role there? So, HKA is a global consultancy specialising in risk mitigation, dispute resolution, expert witness and litigation support services. We've been going since 2017 and now have around 45 offices in 17 countries. Law firms are our principal clients when it comes to expert work. Today we've helped over 100,000 disputes. Since I joined HKA in December, We've been delivering environmental expert witness in international disputes, arbitration and domestic cases. And in particular respect to climate disputes, we received requests for climate attribution scientists and delivered opinions in investor treaty arbitration, inclusive of disputes over greenhouse gas contributions to national targets. What have you had to use or deploy, so to speak, the precautionary principle? Well, I've had to regularly use recourse to both consider and apply the precautionary principle under various environmental issues. In terms of application in a climate context, then early in my career, I was even part of a team that was developing and implementing models of radiological risk for the long-term safety assessment of the DRIG low-level waste repository in Cumbria. My role at the time included looking at near and far future climate change scenario models, stretching out as far as 100,000 years after present. Wow. I mean, that's certainly a timescale to get your head around. I and mean, we'll come back to the timescale shortly. But do you have any more recent examples of using the proportionary principle? Well, in 2020-22, I led a project instructed by the Environment Agency on climate change. This was to generate a robust evidence base to help inform regulatory advice and assessment in taking account of climate change, impacts on waste deposit, landfill and land contamination. It was also to explore adaptation by identifying key risks and vulnerabilities to protect people, the environment, and this was up to 1,000 years after present. This work was timely, as adverse climate change impacts have since become a topic of acute industry impact, in particular from contaminated land and waste groups voicing a requirement for its consideration in ongoing safety assessments. I'm curious just to understand the modelling a bit better. First, can you explain to the listener how you go about modelling such impacts? Well, established impacts to climate change adaptation are highly impact-specific. They're designed to lower vulnerabilities to specific projected impacts of climate change. This begins with an assessment of vulnerabilities, which are then prioritised according to risk, with those impacts rated as having the highest probabilities and most severe consequences then given priority. Actions and policy needed to improve the ability 
of people in industry to avoid or cope with these impacts are then identified. Such an impact-specific approach to climate change, adaptation, is simply based upon the logic of planning. Given a set of needs, what actions are needed and which are then given a highest priority. The problem arises in that few consistent examples arise. Timeframes and vulnerabilities are often poorly defined and different actors have even been applying different climate change scenarios in the UK. What is consensus, however, is that such work should be both proportionate and tiered and that but further awareness and consistency in approach is needed. This is clearly achievable and good examples of identifying vulnerabilities and then systematic decision-making do exist, including consideration of uncertainties in climate systems and climate system response in the UK. Here about the point you made earlier in relation to the Environment Agency project, I mean, why was a thousand-year time period chosen? Firstly, development sites and planning sites were often short-lived. Housing estates, etc., are rapidly redeveloped, say within 60 years. Assessment periods when assessing climate resilience for such developments are typically, therefore, just a few decades. But it's not also unreasonable to assume a period of up to a thousand years in safety cases, for example, when we look at major infrastructure, waste and contamination, as these have the potential for intergenerational burden. For example, when we address groundwater contamination, model simulations of contaminant breakthrough up to a thousand years would not be unusual. Government guidance notes that the Environment Agency apply the precautionary principle and assess groundwater as using a worst-case result, because once polluted, groundwater may take years and years to clean up. Ultimately, however, timescales and climate resilience studies should always be based upon the nature of the risk and should not be prescriptive or arbitrary. The consideration of timescales should be clearly justified as part of any assessment and should be stated early within any assessment. Can you give any other examples of where assessing climate impact requires that kind of modelling? If we take power stations as an example, we have obviously lots of power stations and coastal locations. But for operating power installations, then safety cases address the full or remaining period of operations and address timescale of a few decades. But site decontamination of these power stations remediation programmes through a specified site all the way extend to maybe a century or more. Meanwhile, post-closure safety assessments for waste disposal facilities and landfills might extend to millennia or even further. In fact, a distinction can be made between timescales up to a thousand years, which are generally a focus of studies relating to land contamination and conventional waste disposal, and longer-term national infrastructure, versus timescales of even more than a thousand years, which are often associated with post-closure radiological impact assessment of both near surface and deep geological disposal for solid radioactive wastes. Settings up to a thousand years, for example, may also wish to include an understanding of the different cliff edge effects and climate impact scenarios. For example, they may need to take account, for example, the site assessments go beyond a tipping point in a climate projection. For example, if in a coastal location, de facto an accelerated sea level rise that may occur, for example, in 300 years time. Alex, just obviously wearing your scientist hat before diving into difficulties around definitions of the principle, how do you go about approaching precautionary principle? First of all, precautionary principle only comes into play really where we have scientific uncertainty as a key factor. And there is good reason, and I emphasise the word good reason here, to expect harmful effects. Incomplete information, uncertain evidence and controversy can make it very difficult to achieve consensus when we deal with complex environmental decisions whether it be land contamination, toxicology, biodiversity protection or climate change. 
cautionary principle acknowledges the need to make decisions in situations of uncertainty, rather than pretend they're not there. It's designed to aid with decision-making under uncertainty. It captures the idea that intervention may still be legitimate, even if supporting evidence is incomplete, should both serious and plausible harm be identified. Turning now to specific definitions, I mean, where do you start with that? The classic definition, as you know, the precautionary principle comes way back from the 1992 Rio Declaration of Environment and Development. That said, whether effects of serious or irreversible damage, lack of full scientific uncertainty, shall not be used as a reason for postponing cost-effective measures to prevent environmental degradation. I would emphasise two elements here. Firstly, the term cost-effective, and secondly, that full scientific proof plausible, irreversible, or serious damage is not needed before action is taken to prevent that impact. Meanwhile, if there are no uncertainties, either there is certain to be an impact or there is certain to be no impact, then the precautionary principle is simply not relevant. This situation can be resolved just simply using normal risk management tools. So in your view, is the precautionary principle principally a legal principle or is it a tool for decision making? On the one hand, it's a core principle of EU environmental law. It's enshrined in Article 191, bracket 2 of the Treaty of, on the Functioning of the EU. On the other hand, in the UK, the cautional principle is a guiding principle for fault policy as set out in the 2021 Environment Act. I personally see it in the UK to be an integrative tool to fill actual or potential legal gaps. In the UK, the Environment Agency identified within its third adaptation report that significant climate impacts are inevitable. But also, that our current environmental regulation is simply not ready for changing climate, and that environmental regulations were not conceived to accommodate such rapid environmental change, and that more flexible approaches will be needed. I believe that the precautionary principle supplies the foundation for such a flexible but evidence-based approach. This includes when we look at climate issues and developing a climate-resilient UK. This is important because complex environmental issues are inevitably, as I've mentioned already, site or issue-specific. Creating a prescriptive approach in law would, in my mind, be inappropriate, but also difficult to formulate with potential unintended consequences. I consider the precautionary principle to be a foundation for encouraging better decision-making. Whether a general principle or a tool, however, it is simply aligned with the delivery of good governance. It should also not be used to justify arbitrary decisions, such as based on negative bias or a negative outlook, nor to apply for hypothetical effects or imaginary risk. It should always be based upon the fullest scientific examination of the issue in each and every time. That ties in nicely to my next question. So why is the precautionary principle generally seen as contentious? Well, intuitively, you'd think it should be easy to define. Something along the lines of, it's better to be safe than sorry. But precautionary measures are controversial because they're underpinned by the following. Why do we need to do something? When do we need to do it? And how do we need to do it? And fundamentally, to what extent do we need to be precautional? This all incurs a financial burden on somebody, be it a state, a company, or an individual. It may, for example, require the cessation of an activity or its justification to minimise impacts. It may require adaptation of a new development or new investment in an old development, all of which can be controversial. Global interpretations of the precautionary principle also vary according to the degree of scientific uncertainty that's required to prompt intervention. 
Some interpretations are much stronger and stricter than others. This is what's making it difficult to apply the precautionary principle at the international level. Domestically, I've even seen fear expressed from stakeholders over concerns that costs and implications of adaptation arise versus uncertainty in the climate change models and the different perceptions of risk versus their own. For example, if the precautionary principle is invoked against a regulated site, let's use an example as a landfill, based on an overly negative outlook from a regulator, the regulator may be necessitating that the landfill delivers unwarranted and costly intervention, for example. This could be perceived as over-engineering of a facility beyond which the problem holder would consider to be reasonable to protect against future perturbations in climate. We have an immediate conflict here between the regulator and that of the landfill operator. Another common criticism of the cautionary principle has been ill-defined. Concerns relate to ambiguous terms such as irreversible harm or even lack of full scientific certainty, which has invoked different attitudes of risk perception. Some critics have even suggested that these definitional problems have undermined its legal certainty and have produced inconsistent and on occasion unprincipled decisions. For example, intervention when intervention is not needed and such being contrary to the ideas of sustainability. Others have argued that even stronger versions of the principle are paralyzing because they offer no guidance at all and forbid all courses of action. But I would also reflect that the EU has argued that invoking the proportion principle requires the need for reasonable grounds of concern, and I emphasise the word reasonable here. The UK has also noted, very similarly, that there must be sufficient evidence that the risk of serious or irreversible damage is plausible and real. Again, I emphasise the word plausible. Overall, in practice, I have seen the precautionary principle help in avoiding situations where standard risk analysis would otherwise have created bias in favour of taking chances on poorly understood risks. I've also seen the precautionary principle not to result in stringent and more costly regulation, only that the principle has been used as a tool to ensure a better process of decision making and give transparent reflection of the alternatives rather than a single drive towards a particular outcome and a more costly outcome. In fact, I suppose I would conclude that the precautionary principle is a good servant but bad master. It can be very useful but can become half and harmful if misused. Thank you very much for your time today, Alex. You've certainly given us a lot of food for thought. We explore this in more detail in our next episode. Thank you. Thank you.